Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Is the New Testament text reliable? What do we do with textual variants? How do I use the Greek New Testament? This book, An Introduction to the Greek New Testament, serves as a companion to the Greek New Testament produced at Tyndale House, Cambridge, published in November 2018. It provides crucial information about the Tyndale House edition in particular and the Greek New Testament in general. Dr. Dirk Youngkind, one of the principal scholars behind this groundbreaking project, answers critical questions for understanding the biblical text so that you can have clarity and confidence as you engage with the New Testament in the original Greek. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dirk Youngkind about his new book, An Introduction to the Greek New Testament, available May 31st. Dr. Youngkind is the Academic Vice Principal and Senior Research Fellow in New Testament Text and Language at Tyndale House, Cambridge. He is one of the principal scholars behind the Greek New Testament produced at Tyndale House, Cambridge, and serves on the editorial board of the Journal for the Study of the New Testament. Dr. Youngkind, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I wonder if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. Ooh, help. How did I become interested in biblical studies? Grew up in the Netherlands in, uh, within one of the many uh, Dutch Reformed denominations. It wasn't the biggest one. But was, as a child, always surrounded uh, by good Bible teaching, by a real interest in Scripture. And the interest in, in Scripture itself came quite natural to me, especially sort of from my early teens onwards. I can remember sort of being a a very keen student and a very keen listener. So as as long as I sort of have have memory, I've always been very interested in everything biblical. Um, My interest in Greek and Greek text and Greek manuscripts must come back. Uh, must go back to the very first Greek New Testament I uh, I got as a present from my uh, parents when I was thirteen years old. When I saw all the textual variants, I found that slightly disturbing, but never really sort of went into any sort of uh, textual theory or or anything advanced at that time. But as a teenager, uh, being uh, a student at a uh, gymnasium, which is one of those European continental school systems where you get classical Greek and Latin from age 12 onwards. Um, I I knew my Greek and I was reading the Greek New Testament as such. So, yeah, there was a kind of during my teenage years, during my formative years, I had quite a heavy exposure to, to Greek and to the Greek New Testament. I didn't pick that up sort of in my studies, I first went uh, to study psychology, which was very helpful. But 
I found that uh, helping my father on the flower nursery back in the Netherlands was a more attractive proposition. So I was a flower grower till I was 29. Mm. Wow. So as you, um, as Tyndale House created this um, amazing work of your edition of the Greek New Testament, why, why don't you tell us about why um, an introduction is needed for, um, for your work? Oh, let me put one correction in place straight away. I don't think an introduction is needed. Now, actually, it is very important that, that we approach Scripture and also approach the Greek New Testament just immediately without having to wade through a thick layer or pulling aside the curtain of the introduction before we can reach the actual text. So just start reading Greek New Testament, should work perfectly fine. Just reading, start reading Scripture, should work perfectly fine. However, having said that, I know that people have questions. Um, where does this book come from? What's the history behind it? Um, how do I know that I can trust that the words I see on the page have not been made up by, by someone at a, sort of a study somewhere high in Cambridge, but have actually a, a long history, a long history of documentary evidence behind them? And that is roughly why I wrote the uh, introduction to the Greek New Testament. So it is basically trying to answer questions that people might have, rather than providing a necessary uh, hoop you have to jump through before you are able and prepared to read the Greek New Testament. Yeah, and, and so chapter one begins with kind of the apologetic for how the Tyndale House has created um, this amazing edition. And so I was wondering if you could explain how this edition seeks to give the text of the original Greek as accurately as possible. The main, re the main way how we want, uh, went about trying to be as accurate as possible, and I think that's a good, very good phrase to use, is by paying attention to details. So we are not assuming that there is uh, sort of, there are details that are too small to worry about. No, basically we, we had no uh, preference up front. Every detail might be important. Now, of course, we're looking, by and large, for the oldest recoverable features, which means the, the actual words, etc. And on top of the oldest words, we find then the additional layers that we find in the course of textual transmission. Let me explain. In the oldest manuscripts, quite often, we don't find blank spaces in between words. So very often the words are just written one after the other without demarcating one word from the other. Now, in the course of you know, hundreds of years of writing Greek, it became customary to have these word divisions. And we went for those word divisions as well. So that is a later feature that we've almost put on top of the oldest layer. The same is true for accents, which accents are basically attested in a consistent way 
from the 8th, 9th century onward. We have accents in our text, but they are not part of the oldest recoverable layer. So we looked at details, but details in manuscripts. We tried to put some breaks on our own freedom uh, we might have to introduce uh, textual readings that follow our instincts, but may not be in, uh, attested in the earliest documents. And then chapter two moves into some practicalities of showing how the Tyndale House Greek New Testament is visually unique. And then you move to chapter three with a discussion of manuscripts and how um, how then you take a, a tour through the major sources of the New Testament. And so um, this edition uses all papyri regardless of age, all majuscules from the 5th century and earlier, and then a selection of later manuscripts. And I was wondering how if you could give kind of an overview of, of how this criteria was established. Yes, there is a difference between uh, the manuscripts we cite in the actual Greek New Testament, so at the bottom of the page, so the citations there are the apparatus. So there we have limited ourselves to the papyri and all the uh, majuscule manuscripts from the 5th century and earlier. In actual practice, when we made the decision on a case-by-case basis, um, we used many, many more uh, manuscripts. And we have all the handbooks open, all the collations of manuscripts that have been published and make use of the full range of evidence. But in our presentation of the material, we have restricted ourselves to mainly the earliest section. And that in part is there to reflect that all things being equal, there is a higher probability that the earlier attested wording of the New Testament is correct than a reading of the New Testament that is only found in more recent, younger manuscripts. So on the basis of that assumption, we concentrate on the oldest manuscripts, on that oldest layer. Now, in the... Uh, in the introduction, I, I go over some of the papyri and, and some of the early majuscules. And I've tried to stay away from the standard introduction into these uh, manuscripts. Now, there are good handbooks available, uh, which give you all the, the outlines, the, the bits of history, etc. you need to know. Um, what I concentrated on was those things that make a practical difference, that, uh, that helped me in the use of these manuscripts while we were uh, preparing the uh, Greek New Testament. And then the, the book moves into a practical section where you begin by talking about, you kind of take the information of the methodology for Tyndale House's Greek New Testament, and, and you have just some very helpful stuff. And chapter four is entitled, How Decisions Are Made, um, where you examine the way in which manuscripts were produced. So since no simple algorithm exists to solve the historical problem of textual variance, how does the Tyndale House Greek New Testament decide on wording? Um, yeah, I think chapter four is 
probably the most important uh, chapter of the whole introduction. Because it is indeed based on what we know about the copying process. Uh, so rather than drawing up a theoretical framework of things that we assume copyists did wrong, we try to concentrate on those things that we know copyists did wrong in the uh, copying of manuscripts. And when I say things that copying, uh, copyists did wrong, or they could do wrong, or often did uh, wrong. I mean, most of the time, a copyist just copied the text without any change. So, so th that's a helpful footnote. But how that um, comes into play uh, in preparing the Greek New Testament is that we try to explain variants. So we have two readings in two different groups of manuscripts. We look at the external evidence. So is one reading only found in early manuscripts, one reading only found in late manuscript? Well, that pretty much uh, gives us a bias when we start thinking about how did the variant come into being. So the external evidence provides us with a bias, a sort of tendency, a direction of, of travel, before we start thinking about how does this the variant come into being. And that results in a sort of question, is there any good reason why we should not print the oldest attested text? And sometimes there can be very good reasons. For example, if the oldest attested text is clearly the result of harmonization to a parallel passage, or when the oldest uh, exter external text has a, a reading, for example, there's an uh, example in Matthew where the side of Jesus is pierced, I think it's Matthew 27, thereabouts, and it is clearly an intrusion from a verse found in the Gospel of John. It's found in all the oldest manuscripts, but it is clearly a result of harmonization. So in those cases, we are happy to reject the oldest attested text, but only with a certain reluctance. We must have very good arguments to overthrow the oldest text. Then the, the next two chapters um, move into what has been omitted in the Tyndale House's edition. Um, so chapter five talks about the Textus Receptus. Why won't the reader of uh, Tyndale House's Greek New Testament find the Textus Receptus in this edition? Um, the Textus Receptus is, of course, well known because it uh, underlies the uh, King James Version or something closer to my home, the Dutch Statenvertaling. Um, it is a text that was printed and used in the 16th century. So it was the text, the Greek text of the Reformation, and subsequently in the 17th century in the whole theological and confessional development there. So historically, the Textus Receptus, as the, uh, this printed text is called, has had quite a big influence on the development of the Protestant Church. 
Um, that is a historical given. Um, now, it is also in line with uh, the principles established in the Reformation that it is the original wording that is authoritative. So it is not the layers put on by church history over the centuries that are authoritative. No, it is the original, back to the original New Testament, back to the sources. And therefore, it is a good Reformation principle to fine-tune the Greek text in use so that it reflects better the original wording as we can establish from good historical research. Um, for many people, the uh, choice of preferring the textus receptus over, uh, for example, the Tyndale House Greek New Testament is one based on a theological notion. Let me, uh, the theological notion, more or less, is that God in his providence um, ensured that the reformers had access to the best possible Greek New Testament in existence. And it is that theologically uh, motivated historical notion that I find hard to accept. I don't find that back in the... Uh, in Reformation thought as such. Right. And then chapter six moves to then focus on the Byzantine text. Um, and so why is the Byzantine text also omitted? Um, and are there good uses for it? Oh, yeah. The Byzantine text as such is a good Greek text. I mean, I don't think that there are that many doctrinal differences between, uh, or for that matter, with the Textus Receptus as well with the Tinder House Greek New Testament. Um, so in a sense, it is a good, uh, well-crafted text. But if you look at the patterns of variation between the Byzantine text and older manuscripts, then you see some very clear phenomena uh, come into play. And one of them is that the Byzantine text has a tendency to provide a more full text than you would expect. So, for example, uh, Matthew tends to cite the Old Testament in its full form, while Luke, on occasion, tends to cite those same verses in a much shorter way. But what you see in the Byzantine text is that Luke then sort of the Byzantine text of Luke, has filled in the parts that you find in Matthew, but not in the older text of Luke. And it is that sort of filling out principle um, that is quite typical of the Byzantine text. Also, there is some grammatical updating going on in the Byzantine text. It was clearly a text you um, intended to be used in the practice of... Um, week-to-week -week church life. And then chapter 7 is entitled Biblical Theology and the Transmission of the Text. And in it, you write, the new covenant involves a change in divine scribal practice. I, I just love this argument. How do the biblical covenants, in your words, relate to textual transmission? 
there is something fascinating about how the Bible talks about Old and New Covenant. Because on more than one occasion, it uses the language of scribal culture to explain the difference between Old and New Covenant. So the Old Covenant uh, was basically founded on God writing on tablets of stone. That's a very scribal beginning of the Old Covenant. Well, the New Covenant is, as predicted sort of by uh, Jeremiah, it is the Holy Spirit writing on the tablets of one's heart. Now, that is a change in sort of uh, scribal culture. Under the Old Covenant, uh, from the very beginning, the tablets that Moses received had to be uh, kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And when Moses then uh, writes all the words of the book of this law, Deuteronomy, he has to put that book with the Levites who are carrying the Ark. So then a principle is established that where the Ark is, that is where God's word is kept. And that principle is more or less maintained throughout the Old Testament into the days of Jesus himself. And once the uh, New Testament church comes into being, that notion of a central authority disappears. Now, the Jerusalem church is scattered over the whole known world. The apostles go out into the world to, to preach. And there is no longer a physical center. Now, that has as a consequence that there is no physical center um, that could guard the authoritative version of the words of the New Testament. So, there was no Antioch that sat on the authoritative edition of the Apostle, uh, letters of the Apostle Paul or the church in Egypt did not sit on the authoritative version of Mark's gospel, or something like that. Now, this kind of spread-out nature of the early church, as far as I can see, is by design. So it is part and parcel of how God has set up the new covenant. And that means that um, that notion that God opted for a spread-out uh, church involves that there is no central uh, depository of the New Testament manuscripts. And that must have assisted the uh, creation and continuation of scribal, uh, scribal variants that came into being in the course of copying. So that is more or less the kind of biblical theological story behind the situation in which we have a Greek New Testament, which has textual variants. Yeah, I just found that a very unique uh, contribution to this discussion and uh, really appreciated that part. Um, and then you, you end with um, kind of a, just a quick note on where we go from here. And so I was wondering... What do you hope for readers of this introduction to walk away with? Ooh, my main hope is that 
people who've read this book will go back to the Greek New Testament and just read it. Oh, perhaps a page per week or a page per day, whatever, a couple of verses per week, but just read it without having any nagging questions sort of hanging over. Uh, I, I want them to pick up the Greek New Testament and pick it up as a Bible rather than as a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, but pick it up as a Bible and read it as, as scripture. And that is why the whole well, Tyndall House edition looks and feels very much like a Bible, because our intention was to produce a Bible more than a critical edition. And of course, the text we, uh, we printed is the result of, I hope, solid text-critical work. It is, in, the, in that sense, a critical edition, but we wanted to put that in the form of a Bible rather than an academic uh, no, sort of hand edition. Yeah, and, and this introduction really is a very helpful work um, that will serve those interested in Tyndale's Greek New Testament and as well as those who just desire to learn more about the New Testament's transmission and, and preservation. Um, so thank you for overviewing the introduction. Um, do you want to share with our audience about what you're working on next? Yes, at the moment I'm working on a more academic project, and that is to provide an explanation for the textual choices we made in the Greek New Testament. So that's called a textual commentary. Uh, it, it's not a commentary on the argument. It is a rather technical commentary on the variants and why we prefer one variant over another. We also are quite honest and upfront about uh, where it is very hard to make a decision. When, and on the trot, we, we tell something about tendencies in manuscripts, tendencies in scribal habits, and all that thing. That's all part and parcel of the textual commentary. Wow, that does sound incredible. Well, Dr. Youngkin, thank you so much for donating your time and being with us today. Um, we appreciate so much just getting to sit down and talk about this new book. And um, again, I'm your host with New Books and Biblical Studies. Until next time, take up and read.